Hello there, and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we were in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And um, haven't had any podcasts lately. I worked very hard teaching a um, apologetics class last semester. And this semester I enrolled um, in a class, a philosophy class, and uh, that kept me hopping, um, basically sucked up all my free time that I normally would have been podcasting with. Um, but I finished my second paper, uh, from that class. There were only two papers. Next thing on the agenda is, uh, an exam. And I thought, what better way to study for an exam, because it's a closed book exam, um, than podcasting. And so I'm planning, I've got ten questions here, and, uh, three of them are going to be on the exam, and I can pick two of those. So what would be excellent is for me to record a podcast on each of these ten, got two weeks to do it, so I may or may not get to it, but that's that's the plan at this point, uh, is to create uh, a few podcasts on these questions, and that'll really cement it in my mind. But I'm not going to start on that yet. What I want to start, what I want to record today is the paper that um, I just wrote, actually the paper that I didn't write today. Uh, I just finished my paper on philosophy and theology in Thomas Aquinas. Uh, which is a very fascinating topic. Um, and uh, that's probably going to be part two. That'll probably be a second podcast. Um, what I want to talk about is the relationship between philosophy and theology for the first about 1,400 years in the Christian church, and actually a few hundred years before um, Christianity came on the scene. This is a super important issue. Um, obviously, when you're doing apologetics, uh, when you're trying to you know, share the gospel with people, and and even when you, you know, for maybe people aren't even serious about becoming Christians, but maybe they're you're just saying, well, religion has a place in society. Religion should have a place in society. Pretty quickly, people are going to push back with, well, what about you know the Galileo trials when when religion tried to um, hold back science? What about the Scopes Monkey trials and Darwinism when religion is trying to hold back science? Um, so pretty quickly there's this tension between science and religion and people will push back on that and say, hey, you know, religion and science are two different things. Faith and reason are two different things. Um, that's fine that you're over in your corner doing religious stuff, but don't come into the public sphere and try and push your religion on other people. And this is obviously a very large, very complex issue. Uh, I do have a podcast on, um, science and religion. Um, the thoughts that I have in this paper are going to be um, a lot deeper than that because it's something that I've been working on and this is actually helping me dig deeper in this. Now, deeper than the question of science and religion, both the word science and the word religion are super vague terms. Um, and so we need to find more precise terms that undergird them and to pick up the story uh, because it's really a story that's been going on uh, for at least 2,500 years of um, really philosophy interacting with religion. And what we're going to look at today is um, five major models of how philosophy has interacted with religion, uh, specifically within Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Um, and so we're going to pick up the story with... Um, I'm going to be skimming through. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I'll give you a little bit of context. I'm supposed to write on Thomas Aquinas, but I knew nothing about Thomas Aquinas, which is why I wanted to write a paper on him. 
Um, but as it came to crunch time and I just had to put pen on paper, I thought, well, I'm going to start with what I know. And so I, I was going to write just like a paragraph introduction of um, kind of the context of of ideas that came before Thomas Aquinas. Now, I know a ton about the Anti-Nicene Fathers because I did a reading project in them. And so I ended up, uh, by the time I was done, it, it kind of got out of hand on me. By the time I was done, I had written 20 pages on um, on philosophy and religion in uh, the Anti-Nicene Fathers and then in Augustine and then in uh, people that I knew. Um, and as I was writing, I just had this voice in the back of my head saying, the teacher's going to fail you. He's going to write this whole part is just garbage. And um, I knew that was true. Uh, it's a s- super interesting topic, but it wasn't on... <laughs> I-, I was being a bad student. Um, that wasn't on my, my actual subject. However, lucky for you, I did the work. I ended up cutting that all out of my paper, starting over. Um, and-, and now... We'll have podcast two on what is Thomas Aquinas' actual solution between philosophy and theology. Uh, but first, hey, you know, I've got this all prepared. It's going to be a, a rockin' uh, blog post soon as well. Maybe even by the time this comes out, it'll be as a blog post. Um, let's talk about the four models um, that predate uh, Thomas Aquinas, how people interacted with theology and philosophy before that. Um, so my paper kicks it off by saying that since at least 399 BC, when Socrates was executed for teaching atheism, there's been an important tension in the realm of thought between philosophy and religion. So Socrates, you might not know a lot about him other than that he was an important philosopher, came up with a Socratic method, also inspired Plato, who inspired Aristotle, and those three really are the most important thinkers in Western thought, um, the most important philosophers, for sure. Um, and um, Socrates was killed because his philosophy was seen as being against um, the polytheism of his day. Of course, this was 400 years before Jesus, and this this wasn't Christianity, but there was the religious system in place, and then there was this this philosophy deal going on. And there were other political issues, and there were interpersonal issues, and there were other reasons that he was executed. Um, but that was the first time that there was kind of a flashpoint between philosophy and religion. Now really, if we want to start at the beginning, which we're not going to do in this podcast, but Thales was the one that began the project of philosophy. Uh, we'll probably uh, pick that up in the first first podcast on uh, philosophy, when we talk about uh, Heraclides and Parmenides, I'll probably start it with Thales and give you some of the pre-Socratics there. Um, but just to say, this this tension, this dialogue was going on back and forth because the whole thing that sets philosophy apart from uh, theology, whatever that theology was, you know, at the time that Socrates was killed, it was polytheism, it was Zeus, it was... Um, you know, the, they had the Odyssey and, and the Iliad and, and various mythical poems about uh, their gods and famous men. You had that whole body of knowledge and that way of proving truth. And then you had philosophy. And Thales was a guy that just studied nature and tried to figure out how the world worked just studying nature. And then eventually, as the 
the movement gathered steam and, and people started figuring things more and more out. Um, and especially actually with Aristotle, there was Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And Aristotle really developed um, argumentation and logic as, as really a powerful, powerful tool. Aristotle is known as the father of modern science because um, he was able to start with sensory data and also with first principles, things that you can prove rationally. And using what you can see in the world around you and then what you can prove rationally those are your, that's the first step, and then from there you can build up to you know further conclusions. You can develop data about the world around you. You can develop data about um, about everything, and so that's a very different approach than say going to the temple or going to the church or the mosque or whatever, and somebody telling you from the holy book what is true. Clearly, these are two different ways of having truth, and there's going to be tension between them. Um, so we pick up the story of how Christianity enters into the fray. Um, well, before I do, I mean, let me pause this and think for a second here. If there's any other introductory things I want to say before we get into the models. Yeah, um, let's read this, uh, citation here from Peter Kreeft, um, as, as kind of a summary introduction to, uh, these four, models plus Thomas Aquinas, these five models. It says there's five basic ways um, that two classes of things can relate to one another. So this is set theory, but it's not terribly complicated. He says, think of two circles, A and B, which can be in five possible relationships to one another. A could be part of B, or B could be part of A, or they could be totally separate, or they could be totally identical, or they could be mutually overlapping. So I could say that again, A could be part of B, B could be part of A, they, or uh, they could be totally separate, totally identical, or mutually overlapping. So these um, kind of illustrate uh, the, the basic models that we have. Um, if you can think of these two circles, one being theology, one being philosophy, um, these are going to do very well um, in illustrating how these, two, these models work. Um, maybe I'll just list them now, and then uh, as I go on, um, I'll give you more details. So the first one is syncretism, or liberalism, and this is where um, theology basically becomes part of philosophy. It just kind of gets sucked into that bubble, and it's part of it. Um, then we have conservatism, where there's a strong separation between the two. Then we have Augustinianism, where um, philosophy actually becomes part of theology. Now, the whole thing is kind of wisdom, is kind of knowledge, but really knowledge of God is the highest part, and th philosophy kind of sneaks into the bubble of, of uh, theology. At least that's how I understand uh, Thomas Aqu um, That's how I understand Augustine. Try not to confuse these people. Then we get into the Middle Ages, and we'll talk about Averroes and some other Muslim scholars. And um, he developed a theory of double truth, uh, which is very similar to, um, well, Averroes probably had a similar idea to this liberalism or syncretism idea that I'll explain in a second, that uh, theology is part of philosophy. But some of his disciples developed something called double truth, where... Um, Something can be true in theology, and something 
very different can be true in philosophy. These are two separate realms of thought. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they're you know, just two... Again, there's a separation, a strong separation of these two. When you're in this bubble, something might be true, but when you're in this bubble, something else might be true. Um, and then Thomas Aquinas is basically going to defend uh, that these two either are really tight together. If you can think of two bubbles of soap and you know they're round, but where they squish together is a line very, very close together, or Peter Kreeft would say that they are overlapping. Whether they're overlapping, I, I don't really think they're overlapping, um, but they're very, very close together and they have a strong relationship and interaction between each other that he has very well defined. And it took me 23 pages to explain exactly how all um, it works for Thomas Aquinas. So that will definitely be a second podcast. Um, so now that's the overview of it, let's, ju- let's dive into some specifics. So um, the first guy we need to look at uh, when we're talking about... Um, Syncretism, okay, let's define our terms. Synchronism is, uh, when we're talking about religion um, and philosophy, it's talking about synchronizing, bringing two things together. If you're synchronizing, you know, a time, uh, you know, in music, you would synchronize to one another, get in time with each other. Um, Usually, you know, if you're a conservative Christian, syncretism is a bad thing. Missionaries talk about syncretism as a bad thing. You know, you, you try and share the gospel with um, another group of people in a way that they don't synchronize it with their religion and create kind of a new religion. We want to share what the truth is of Christianity, not synchronize it. Um, I've tentatively called this a liberal position uh, in that that might be a mistake because I don't want to confuse it with modern liberalism. Now, modern liberalism, I've got podcasts on that you can go listen to, is basically Christianity synchronized with the philosophy of modernity. I've got podcasts on what modernity is, post-modernity. Um, and so it's liberal in the sense that it's synchronizing with something. But don't be confused because this is a different philosophy that they're being synchronized with. Um, contempt, I mean, liberals from now this day tend to be uh, deists, they tend to uh, be kind of agnostic about God, uh, kind of agnostic about whether scriptures are really speaking from God, um, and they're very focused on, you know, the internal life and, and our emotions and things like that. Um, and uh, liberalism in the first, in the early church is synchronizing Christianity with Aristotle and Plato and Neoplatonism. So it's a very different animal. All right, so with that clarification underway, um, the first guy we'll look at is Philo. Now, Philo was a Jew that lived um, around the time of Jesus. Let me just look that up for you. Yeah, so Philo was born in 250 BC, and he died in 50 AD. Well, he had a good lifespan for the time. Oh, he was living in Egypt, so people tended... uh, it seems like people lived longer in North Africa than other parts of the Mediterranean at that time. Um, it, it just seems like that to me at this moment. Might not be true. Anyways, uh, so he he lived um, before and after the time of Jesus. Jesus was born around 5 BC and died around 33 AD. And uh, Philo, um, he 
very much want to synchronize Greek thought with um, Judaism. And specifically, his favorite was Plato. So he called Plato the most holy Plato. Um, and he saw uh, philosophy as a devotion to wisdom, the highest good thing to men, and as a way to achieve uh, the knowledge of God in men. Wisdom is a pursuit made only possible through God-given rationality. So God gives us the intellect to pursue wisdom. Um, and that's what makes it possible. And it's possible because uh, God has impressed his law on all of nature. And so our rationality that God has given us is able to see God's law in nature um, and discern the order in nature. These are thoughts that are very coherent with, or very similar to Platonism, but also you can see how he could get that from the Old Testament as well. Um, he made a reconciliation between um, Plato and Moses. You know, which one is the authority? Is Plato the authority? Is Moses the authority? By saying that Moses was kind of a super um, philosopher in the same genre, in, in the same genre, as uh, you know, Aristotle and Socrates, Moses also was a philosopher who had reached the very summit of philosophy. Um, so, in saying that, he kind of—I mean, he's seems like he's doing Moses a favor, but really, for Jews, he's kind of doing Aristotle, Plato a favor, isn't he? He's putting Moses in the same category as uh, these Greek philosophers. Therefore, you know, allowing them to speak. Uh, to a conservative Jewish um, mentality. Um, and so he would say that philosophy is accessible, philosophy being the love of wisdom, pursuit of wisdom, is accessible both through the study of the Torah and also through secular philosophy, uh, since God has written his law both in the Torah, what we would call the Old Testament, and also in the world around us. Um, and so the big question then is, well, how do you resolve conflicts between the two? Uh, and one of the big conflicts that's going to come up over and over in this discussion is that um, the Greek um, masters, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, would have seen matter as eternal. But Jewish scriptures see matter as uh, being created especially by God. Interestingly, after, uh, fifth, after 19 and a half uh, centuries of debate on this issue, we win. <laughs> Big bang, yay us, uh, Kalam cosmological argument. Um, very flippantly, uh, Richard Dawkins says, well, flip a coin 50-50, and, uh, you know, it, it's not a big deal that, um, that the earth had a beginning either. It had a beginning or it didn't have a beginning. We thought it didn't, but actually it did, did no big deal. No, actually, it was a really big deal. Um, for for most of philosophy, um, it was taken as an absolute fact that matter is eternal, uh, based on observation and, and philosophical principles. Um, so how did Philo uh, resolve this tension between the Torah and uh, the, the Greek philosophers? Uh, he brought in something called uh, allegory. Now, allegory was didn't start with him. It was actually present in earlier um, philosophers. Um, 
I believe Plato made use of it, but other philosophers certainly made use of it because it was a way of resolving this tension you had, um, you know, theology basically before Christianity, but ideas from the Greek gods, from mythology, and then you have these philosophers that, that are studying the world, that are coming up with first principles, that are um, making statements about what is true, what is good, what is just, and they don't necessarily line up with these myths that they had. Um, so the way that that was resolved was to say the myths are um, allegories to teach us principles. They didn't actually happen. These gods don't necessarily actually exist as humanoid beings that come down and, you know, have sex with people and 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 um, have wars and and things like this. These are these are principles that teach us about life, and this is the understanding that we still have more more or less about um, the Greek gods because this is what kind of philosophy did to to the Greek. Um, religious system is it turned it into allegories. Uh, and so Philo brings this into Judaism and he says, all right, well, we can use the Old Testament, but we're just going to turn these stories into allegories. Now, I'll confess I'm not super familiar with, with Philo, except that I know his importance in history, but I can't give you any good examples of how he did this. But I'm just going to imagine um, or guess that something like um, and so I'm just guessing, perhaps the beginning of the world was, you know, an allegory to teach us something about God, but it didn't actually happen that, that the world began to exist. The world always existed, but God revealed this, you know, this story allegorically about what actually happened. Um, perhaps the exodus didn't actually happen. That's just a story to explain or to, to teach us some deeper principle. Um, you might, at this point, be saying, hey, that kind of sounds like contemporary liberalism. Uh, and certainly contemporary liberalism um, would follow a different method. It wouldn't be the allegorical method. But they do kind of end up in similar places at times, saying, well, these stories didn't actually literally happen. But they teach us stories about life, and, and there's principles within them. And you can see how they're, um, it's a method that is trying to reconcile um, the Old Testament to a different to another thought system. Uh, it's really the ethics of of Immanuel Kant and modernity, um, which is a whole other story. Uh, maybe I shouldn't get distracted with with contemporary liberalism. So uh, let's get back to Philo. So he's using allegory to uh, reconcile these two difficulties. So very much philosophy is the larger circle and theology is this bubble that's being drawn into uh, philosophy. Then we get to Christianity. Um, there's a tradition that Mark, who traveled with Peter, uh, who uh, wrote the Gospel of Mark, and I believe is the same Mark that sometimes traveled with Paul, uh, although after a while then he didn't travel with Paul anymore because there was the issue with Paul and Silas. Um, this same Mark uh, apparently traveled down to Alexandria, which is the town in Egypt that was founded by Alexander the Great, a very important city with the Library of Alexandria, center of learning. Uh, Mark traveled down there and established a school, a very small, unpretentious school, but it was for training um, uh, you know, pastors. They called them different things back then, bishops and, and uh, things like that. Um, 
Whether or not he did that or not is not certain, but what we do know is by about 70 years after the death of Jesus, around 100 AD, um, there is a school in Alexandria that uh, is the first seminary of Christianity, and this school continues for a number of centuries. I'm not sure how long it goes, um, but it develops a number of very, very important influential church fathers. Um, Mark, by the way, came from a wealthy family, and so it's it's likely that he had an education, and so he would have been equipped to, well, write the Gospel of Mark, for one thing. Likely Peter, who he traveled with, was illiterate, so Mark wrote for him. And that might make sense how he was able to start the school, perhaps with family funds, too. I'm, I'm just guessing here. Anyway, so there's this school in Alexandria, and the first major um, head of the school is Clement of Alexandria. And Clement comes out very positive um, in favor of Greek uh, thought and using Greek thought um, to explain Christianity and um, kind of recasting Christianity along the same lines as um, Greek thought. So let me pick up uh, something I wrote here in this paper here. Um, Among the early Christians, enthusiasm towards philosophy was rather the norm than the exception. This surprised me when I started reading the early church fathers. Um, you kind of have this idea when you're going to read somebody that's living, you know, within a century of Jesus, some of these guys within 50 years of Jesus, some of these guys with, you know, they knew somebody that knew somebody that actually walked with Jesus. Like the connection is that close with Polycarp. He was literally a disciple of John who knew Jesus. And this guy is, you know, writing one of the books of in the Antonicene Fathers that you can pick up and read. Um, it's amazing how close the contact is. And you would just assume that these guys have, you know, a pure, unblemished um, understanding of the gospel. And, and they do in some senses, but in other senses, um, they picked up Greek philosophy very, very, very quickly. Um, so Co- Frederick Copleston, who wrote... Um, probably the best, everybody says it's the best, um, summary of Greek, of, um, of philosophy. It's like a 10 volume book and I had to buy two volumes for this class and I really loved them actually. Um, so Frederick Copleston says, uh, as Christians had no philosophy of their own to start with, i.e. in the academic sense of philosophy, they naturally turned to the prevailing philosophy, which was derived from Platonism, but was strongly impregnated with other elements. So he just straight up says, look, the early Christians just grabbed this stuff off the shelf. Uh, They did, well, I mean, it's not as though they came to the equation with a blank slate. Uh, These were Greek-thinking people. These were Greek-speaking people. These were people that that grew up in schools where Platonism was taught. And so as they understood as they received Christianity, they said, oh, yeah, that makes sense, and they they fit it within the framework of Platonism. Um, okay, so actually, after all that I said about Alexandria, let me back up and talk about Justin Martyr, because uh, that's where I really should have started. He's the first apologist of the Christian religion, the first guy that tries to explain Christianity to the Jewish world, and in so doing, helps Christians figure out what they actually believe. Uh, apologetics is the mother of theology, in the, if you look at it historically speaking. Um, and Justin Martyr was uh, 
a very well-trained philosopher before he became a Christian. Uh, and uh, he was actually converted by somebody that was able to speak his language, understand his philosophy, and then explain Christianity within concepts that he understood. Um, he was the first to propose the idea that Plato was influenced by Moses. Moses, obviously, you know, Judaism being around uh, much earlier than Plato was, uh, and and Plato, um, I mean, it was, it was there was some travel and trade, so it's it's not completely impossible. Um, a lot of the early church fathers thought, uh, picked up on this, and felt that Moses uh, did influence Plato in the sense that Judaism played some role in in Plato's thinking. Uh, Plato never ever mentions it in any of his writings. Um, and so it just and and there's not any solid proof that this happened and so, and so contemporary scholars again I'll refer to Copleston um, Copleston just says there's no evidence for it and it's very unlikely that it happened but for the early church they felt that it was very likely that Plato had um, been influenced by Judaism and this was something that helped them feel more excited about accepting um, Greek thought specifically Plato into their thinking. Um, in future podcasts, I'm going to talk a lot more about Plato and Aristotle and their various systems. Let me just say that Plato left a lot more question marks than Aristotle. Socrates left, I mean, almost all he left was question marks. He, he was on to something, but, um, he, he was just asking a lot of questions and he really inspired Plato to think and ask more questions. And Plato developed this idea that there is a world of forms. There is this some reality where there is a perfect circle. There is a perfect triangle. There is perfect justice. And somehow our world is based on perfection. And we've fallen from that. And yet there's still images and resemblances of perfection. And so this was able to bring order to... Um, to the Greek mind because there was one fixed point of reference. Within the world of order, this world of the forms, there was the form of the good, which was the absolute form. And so the whole thing was ordered towards... It was like a monotheistic system. It was like a system with just one God in that everything made sense and that it was ordered towards one point. Um, in answer to the question, well, how did we get here? Um, what happened that we should be made. He had this vague concept of the demiurge that he never really developed, and he even said it's it's a likely myth, which means, I don't know if it's true, but it's the best I got, basically, in, in crude terms. And so Christianity comes along and says, man, this looks a lot like Christianity. This looks a lot more like Christianity than, for example, polytheism does, or Eastern mysticism. Um, and they were able to say, well, you know... Um, well, I'll just I'll just continue reading here that um, Justin Martyr saw um, the God of the Bible as the demiurge, the Creator God in Plato, and he just forthrightly says, "Well, that's that's who he is. He's the demiurge. He's the one that created us, knowing the the forms." Um, and he makes no division between philosophy and theology, and he subsumes them both under the category of wisdom. Right, so Justin Martyr had was a very clear-thinking guy, 
um, and really started something. But he he didn't stick around long. I mean, he's his name Justin Martyr for a reason. He was martyred kind of in his prime, um, and he didn't work out um, some of the ap- implications of his thought. Now, one of his disciples was Tatian, who really went reacted against. He he took a lot of the theology of Justin Martyr, but said we can't do anything with this. Um, this philosophy business, uh, and we're actually not going to talk about Tatian. We'll just skip over his head to talk about Tertullian because he's a lot more meaty. There's more we can sink our teeth into. Um, but following more in the in the vein of of Justin Martyr was the school of Alexandria. That sorry, jumping around here a bit, but that I talked to you a bit about before. So the first teacher is Clement of Alexandria, the first one that we know a whole lot about. Uh, that's really significant to our topic. Um, so Clement says that it is not by nature, but by learning that people become noble and good. So people need an education to be good uh, and, and to learn what goodness is. And that it's impossible for a man without learning to comprehend the things that are declared in the faith. So um, I think a lot of Christians today would disagree with this because, you know, look, you can get saved without having a good education. Um, But for Clement, no, having a good education was very important. Uh, In fact, it seems as though, um, well, it might not be important for salvation, but but to really understand, you need an education, uh, perhaps be a teacher. And of course, he was the teacher of um, the first seminary of Christianity. This education for Clement should include the very best of Greek philosophy, as he says forthrightly, our books will not shrink from making use of what is best in philosophy and other preparatory preparatory instruction. Uh, Clement follows Philo in using allegory as an interpretive key for harmonizing the Old Testament with Greek philosophy. Anticipating resistance to his approach, so Clement is writing there's he knows not everybody's agreeing with him. He might be writing against Tatian. Um, he might even overlap with Tertullian a little bit, or there might just be other people that haven't written a whole lot, but are, are resistant to Greek philosophy. He says, Before the advent of the Lord, philosophy was necessary to the Greeks for righteousness. Um, he continues that whereas the law was the schoolmaster for the Jews, the Greeks had philosophy to bring them to Christ. For the Jews seek for a sign, but the Greeks seek after wisdom. Um, so, yeah, philosophy is thus a divine gift to the Greeks, leading them to faith in Christ. Uh, and there is thus no mortal danger in philosophy, since it can be used to demonstrate the Christian faith. So what he's saying there is, look, philosophy, there's at least two senses in which philosophy <clears throat> can lead people to Christ. Um, when we're talking about Greek philosophy. First of all, it is an ethical system. So polytheism is just this this kind of a crazy system where these gods can drop out of the sky and do whatever they want and then go back up in the sky. And if your crops fail, like you don't know what's going on. I mean, go offer a sacrifice at the temple. I mean, somebody's mad at you. So it isn't the system that has a real component of justice and ethics to it. And then philosophy comes along and says, look, um, do what's right, because there is one, you know, there is the form of the good. There is goodness, there is absolute justice. 
So work in, live your life in accordance with absolute justice. And there was even some sense of judgment that, that if you don't live this way, there, it'll come back to bite you. Um, and so in that way, ethically, it was moving people, it was moving society really to a better way of life. Still very limited, and Christianity did a much better job. But it was it was moving. It was an improvement on polytheism, and secondly, it was improvement uh, philosophically speaking, because polytheism again it's it's just this crazy system of all these gods running around, no order, no organization. I know this is my personal perspective on it, but um, philosophy again, there's this demiurge, there's the form of the good. Everything is organized in sort of this monotheistic way. Um, there's truth, there's wisdom, there's all these things, there's there's this bonanza of, of information that really is compatible with Christianity. I mean, if you want to understand the rapid spread of Christianity at the time that it did in the first two, three centuries, you really need to understand that, that Platonism and Neoplatonism was, was the dominant philosophy of the day. And this is probably the most favorable philosophical system for Christianity. It just fits like a glove. Um, and so what Clement was saying is, is philosophy was God's way of preparing people to receive uh, Christianity. Uh, and it can't be bad because people get saved using it. Uh, that's a bad argument. <laughs> I've heard people use that for all sorts of things. You, this can't be bad um, because I've seen somebody get saved uh, through this. For example, Islam can't be wrong because people have gotten saved from reading the Quran. All right, well, people have gotten saved when, from reading the Book of Mormon. People have gotten saved being stoned on meth. People have gotten saved in all sorts of ways. God is not limited in how he can save people. But that doesn't mean those are good things. Um, the best illustration I heard of this, this is a bit of a tangent, but um, uh, Bruxy Cavey gives the example of the wise men uh, that came to see Jesus. Now these are astrologers. Astrology is condemned in the Bible. It's, uh, it's a form of basically of, of witchcraft. You don't look at the stars and figure out your destiny from that. And yet these people, through astrology, came to Christ. But that doesn't sanctify the process of astrology. Um, so anyway, so that's a little bit off topic, but um, it's kind of helpful to, to mention. Um, okay, and then we get to Origen. Now, Origen goes a lot further than Clement. Unfortunately, by this point in my preparation, I realized I am really getting off base here. So I didn't dig super deep into Origen, but he just continues with... Um, with what Clement had had said and, and Justin Martyr before him, but takes it even many steps further. Uh, he was influenced by Amanius Saccus. I'm not sure how to pronounce that actually in English. Ammonius or Amanius Saccus, who is the father of Neoplatonism. And Neoplatonism was kind of a religious um, formulation of Platonism. Um, wrote a paper on that. I'll probably do a podcast on that soon. Um, but Origen was literally a disciple of, of the guy that started Neoplatonism. Um, and uh, he really cast Christianity in the vein of Neoplatonism. Origen was this incredible guy that just wrote books and books and books and books and books. He's, he's one of those guys that as you're studying, it's like, okay, this is the smartest guy alive on the planet at the time. Like, he is that smart. 
Um, one of the things that he's most famous for is making the Hexapla, which was a Bible in, I think, seven columns. And he assembled all the manuscripts that he could find. Um, and he had like three columns of Greek, three columns of Hebrew, three columns of um, Aramaic or, or Syrian, or I forget all the texts. Um, and he had them all side by side with commentary on the side of what texts are better, why they're better, where he got them from. So it's a very much like, this is something you would expect to have. I mean, this is text criticism he was doing in the second century, uh, super far ahead of his time. Unfortunately, most of that work is lost. Um, very influential writer, very passionate Christian. Uh, when he was a kid, his father was dragged away to martyrdom, and uh, he was ready to chase after him and get martyred with him. And his mother literally hid his clothes <laughs> so that he couldn't leave the house. Um, later on, he felt called to celibacy. So he took two bricks and he castrated himself. Um, that's how dedicated he was uh, to his faith. Um, that action he ended up regretting later, but um, it was a one-way trip. Um, Origen, such an interesting guy. Um, now Origen, uh, yeah, so, what do I have written here? Origen writes that Moses ascended above all created things and united himself to the creator of the universe, who made known divine things far greater, with far greater clearness than Plato. Um, so you can hear, um, basically the same thing as Clement, that, that Moses is a philosopher like like Plato. He he saw things so much better and and clearer and, and this is why we can treat him as a philosopher in the same way that we can Plato. Um Origen also uses the allegorical method um and um you know to, to explain difficult parts of the Old Testament and Origen really applies this as an apologist, his major work, one of his major works is Contra Celsus. Celsus was one of the first guys that really academically um, attacked the church and wrote this long book all about how Christian doctrine was wrong. Kind of the first Richard Dawkins of the, the first century, or no, second century. Um, and Origen takes it upon himself to write this huge book refuting every single point in, in detail that uh, Celsus makes. And part of it is allegory and not taking the Old Testament literally. Although he does believe in a literal flood, he does, I believe, uh, believe yeah, he does believe in the, or in the beginning of creation, that matter is not eternal. Uh, so he doesn't allegorize everything, but allegory is a very important part of his, his methodology. Um, okay, so critical review, and then I think, I think this is, thought this was going to be one podcast. How naive am I? Um, so I think this will probably be a four podcast series just on, uh, the four methods of, of, uh, understanding philosophy and theology. And I think I'm going to bed soon because I'm starting to fade. Um, but we'll get through this first. So how can we, what's the critical review of this? Um, the first method of subsuming theology into philosophy, so to speak, or sort of a, a liberal approach. Um, the ability to allegorize... Okay, and I have three, uh, three ways of critiquing it. Is it internally coherent, number one? 
Does it, does it make sense with itself? Number two, is it useful? And by usefulness, what I mostly mean is, um, are you able to win people to the Lord with it? And also, are you able to, to figure out what you believe and to create a livable Christianity? Um, and thirdly, is it... Yeah, thirdly, is it orthodox? Is this Christianity, or are you going off in left field, creating a heresy, creating a new religion? Uh, are you straying from the narrow path of what Jesus taught and what Moses taught? Um, so, critical review of uh, this. Clearly, he was able to create a system that was internally coherent. Uh, it made sense within itself. And I would say that Origen's system, more than Justin Martyr's, more than Clement of Alexandria's, Origen's system, he really developed it. Uh, and you could be a follower of Origen because he had worked out a lot of the, the difficulties, although they're, they're still towards the end of his life where th were areas that he wasn't completely clear. Um, but it, he, it was a coherent system, and so full marks for coherence. Uh, it was a workable system in the sense that Lots. Of, I think Origen probably contributed a lot to uh, the spread of Christianity, to a lot of educated Greeks uh, becoming Christians, because here was a system that made sense to them, that uh, they had somebody to look up to that actually knew more about, you know, their philosophy and their wisdom and their science than they did, and he was teaching them about the Bible, and so you just kind of have this tendency to say, well. I'll take your religion too, um, if if you're that smart. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it was very effective uh, evangelistic tool. It's it's hard to gauge that sort of thing uh, from our end of history, but it, it seems as though uh, his works were very helpful in evangelism. Um, and it seems as though it was very helpful in the sense of developing a Christian system. Uh, his ideas ended up being instrumental to um, figuring out how to explain the Trinity. Christians have always believed in the Trinity. They just took them 500 years to explain what, the what in the world they meant by the Trinity. But they always knew Jesus was God um, from the very earliest times, um, as you can find in Philippians 2 which is a passage that predates uh, Philippians, which was written within, at max, 15 years of the death of Jesus. And 1 Corinthians 11 and 15 contains two passages that predate Corinthians. And all three of those passages, super high on the divinity of Christ. Uh, so don't let anybody deceive you on that point. Um, but, okay, so these were Jews that believed Jesus was God. They also believed there's only one God. So somehow that contradiction needed to be resolved. And Origen was helpful in resolving that. Unfortunately, uh, his, his influence also led towards the creation of Arianism. Arianism is a distortion of Christianity which goes over to the side of being too influenced by Greek philosophy. So Neoplatonism, we'll get to this whenever I do a podcast on Neoplatonism and uh, Augustine, um, used Plato's basic system to say, okay, there's a form of the good, um, there's the demiurge, and then there's us. And um, Ammonius Saccus and Plotinus had a system where there is the one who is absolute reality, uh, but he doesn't 
it's it's a it's a principle that creates other things and then flowing out of that reality is mind and mind is the same as god it's it's god looking back at his at himself and becoming self-conscious that is mind and mind kind of spins off lesser minds and all minds are connected to the one mind uh and then as this mind reflects back on itself it creates soul <laughs> this is getting kind of detailed but this is um this is neoplatonism and soul is what organizes matter matter has always existed in in plato and, and neoplatonism but soul comes in contact with matter this stuff that's always there uh, and it comes in contact with that unites with that and creates living beings soul is what organizes living beings all living beings are organized in one sense or another and it is the soul that gives them that organization um that i believe it's called is it the formal cause um yeah there's the material cause the formal cause um yeah so the soul is what gives it this formal cause the the, the form that causes it to be um and so we're kind of stuck we're trapped in this bottom of of this you know three part system of reality and we need to try and escape uh and and ascend back up to the one um and you know so so where where origin used this try to use this was to say okay god it, the father is the one and then mind is jesus and soul is the holy spirit works great except that um and parts of that ended up being helpful but what later christians had to do was say okay this is this is a nice idea but let's go back to scriptures and we go back to scriptures okay sure jesus is god god the father is god but somehow they're the same they're both equally god and in platonic's system the one is very different from everything else there's a there's a distinction of kind that the one is a different sort of a thing than mind is and so this is where you end up with uh arianism which is the belief that jesus is kind of the first creature of god he's the first creation of god as as um reality is kind of spilling down from absolute reality which is god himself and so this was rejected at the council of nicaea and then there were further debates and by this time there were a large section of of um the roman empire became arians and versus uh the conservative christians and then the arians ended up being the ones that sacked rome um or at least the tribes that were evangelized by arians ended up sacking rome um anyways um all that to say um orthodox the problem with this system is that it started wandering down paths of compromising the orthodoxy of christianity that basically they were creating a new religion that was not orthodox uh and this is why origen was condemned do i have that here at the synod of constantinople in 543 now that's 200 years after his death um the reason he was condemned was because he created arianism this huge heresy that almost overwhelmed uh the church um and uh yeah and then the second council of constantinople um during his life as well he he was um 
he had a lot of opposition, and some of his leaders in the church said, um, removed posts from him, said he couldn't be a bishop here, he couldn't do this, he couldn't do that, um, because of where his doctrines were going. Uh, and so this is the problem, I mean, it's the same problem we have today. I mentioned it's, it's similar to liberalism. I mean, liberalism today, sure, creates a coherent system, sure, I mean, everybody loves you <laughs> when you're a liberal, um, you can make easy converts, you can make friends, you can influence people, uh, you can get a seat on Oprah. Um, but is it orthodox? That's the question. If um, you can allegorize anything in scriptures that you want, um, and if your real authority is something other than scripture, something from philosophy, something from, from the world, um, that's really going to lead you down a path of sacrificing orthodoxy for... Um, for philosophy. So the next podcast, we're going to talk about um, Tertullian, and we're going to talk about conservatism in the early church. But uh, I think this is probably where we're going to leave it now. Um, sure is fun, though. So hopefully we'll have time to pick it up tomorrow and talk about Tertullian and early Christian conservatism. Hey, it's me again. I just listened through it uh, a few days later, and there's a few things. Uh, sometimes I want to correct what I said. Um, the, the one thing as I was listening to this that uh, I really want to be sure I clarify is that uh, the division between um, Arians and Orthodox Christians is not what led to the fall of Rome. When I said that it kind of sounded like uh, there was kind of a civil war brought on by religion and that's what brought, brought Rome down. I'm not aware of any historian that said that. Um, what actually happened is that uh, Christianity was spreading beyond the borders of Rome and so that when the Gauls attacked and when the other people attacked, they had already been Christianized. Uh, and so in that sense, it was Christians against Christians, uh, but they would have attacked anyways. Um, they, and they were, they had been evangelized as it happened by Aryan Christians. And so it was an Aryan versus Orthodox, um, attack, but it was, it was very much, I don't think there's anybody that would say it was, or it was motivated by religion. Where that usually comes in is to say that because, um, of the Christian influence, anybody that fled to a church was safe. Uh, the one, you know, thing that came out of that is that as the Aryans attacked, uh, they didn't desecrate any churches because uh, although it was a different form of Christianity, they still respected the churches were sacred places. So anybody in a church, they didn't attack anybody outside of a church was fair game. So anyways, I wanted to clarify that. Also, obviously this gets into, um, debates with Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses are kind of a revival of Arianism. So they'll often try and say, well, Orthodox Christianity and this whole business with the Trinity was an influence of of Greek philosophy into the church. Uh, and, and that's a long discussion, obviously, and a big debate, because if you're going to get into historically, you got to talk about five centuries of, of history and, and people going back and forth and trying to explain what the Trinity is. Um, but my perspective on it is actually the other way around, uh, that Christians have always from the very beginning said, Jesus is God, God is God, doesn't make sense, but we believe it. Um, we believe that God, that Jesus is 100% God. Uh, and we don't know how the one, how the three and the one can work together, but we know that Jesus is 100% God. Um, where Arianism comes in and, and using uh, Neoplatonism is to say, no, Jesus is is um, part of this Neoplatonic system where you have the one, then you have mind, then you have the spirit. 
And so God kind of fits into that. And you have something where Jesus is less than God. He's a different sort of a being. He's a created being. He's the first being. He's like Michael the archangel, as Arian, as um, as uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would say. So I, I really think, looking at this, that the shoe is on the other foot. It's Jehovah's Witnesses that are influenced by um, Greek philosophy, although it's not as though they were sitting down reading Ammonia Sacchus, but it's that sort of idea um, that is more reflected by Neoplatonism than by Orthodox Christianity.